Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum. Thrilled you join me once again today as we travel through the Forbidden Door. Ooh, that's right. The AEW and New Japan Pro Wrestling Collaboration pay-per-view Forbidden Door is in Toronto on Sunday, June 25th. Our guest today has been a big part of New Japan Pro Wrestling for a long time. It's the king of sneaky style, Rocky Romero. Rocky has been just about everywhere in wrestling for years. It was a big part of last year's inaugural Forbidden Door show, coming together the way that it did. He's also a globetrotter, so I'm very interested in you folks hearing about his perspective on pro wrestling, having worked for so many companies and in so many countries as well. So here we go with Rocky Romero. Very honored today to have with me a stalwart of New Japan Pro Wrestling, a guardian of the Forbidden Door, one of the very best tag team wrestlers of his generation, and the reigning NWA World Historic Welterweight Champion, Rocky Romero. Rocky, thanks so much for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. Thanks for having me, Phil. I'm uh, excited to be here. Thank you. So let's start with what everyone's buzzing about. AW New Japan present Forbidden Door in Toronto Sunday, June 25th. Why do you think AEW and its audience is such a good match for New Japan Pro Wrestling? That's a great question. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the founders of the company, the elite, you know, uh, Nick Jackson, Matt Jackson, and Kenny Omega and Hangman, you know, as well, uh, were, you know, regulars with New Japan Pro Wrestling for many, many years before that. And uh, when they left New Japan to start up AEW, I think that obviously there's a piece of New Japan wrestling. And I also know that, you know, Tony, uh, Tony Khan himself, the owner of AEW, is is a huge fan of New Japan as well. And and uh, so he's been following New Japan for many, many years. So I, I feel like it, it's two groups that definitely complement each other. Obviously, Japanese style wrestling is, you know, more uh, in-ring focused and AEW is, is very in-ring focused, but they also have that, uh, you know, eccentricity that American wrestling needs for television here in the U.S. And you've worked at a lot of companies that have had crossovers, but this one kind of feels special. And last year's was just fantastic, top to bottom. How hard is it to produce a show with two different companies where everyone stays happy and the quality is high? Well, I think the quality part is kind of easy. And the fact that I think both companies have such great talent that, you know, you can put any mixture of these uh, guys or girls together and, uh, you know, create something super special, you know, like we saw last year. Um, I, you know, and uh, outside of that, um, uh, you know, I I think that the hardest part is just like two big companies like this who have a a really regular schedule. Uh, it's hard to try to schedule everybody in when we need to, right? So, uh, you know, now that the, um, the you know, Double or Nothing is finished, so, you know, AEW's got to build now to to Forbidden Door. And, uh, you know, on the Japan side, we had just finished Dominion, and now we're building to Forbidden Door. So now it's just kind of like 
getting everybody acclimated to having these like three or four weeks that we need to build the pay-per-view. Um, but also like there doesn't also need to be a crazy build like you would normally build to a, a, a big show because Forbidden Door is kind of special in the fact that it's dream matches or matches, you know, or trying to give you matches that you wouldn't normally see on either program, right? Whether it's an AEW or New Japan. That, that's kind of what I was going to bring up. It's the kind of thing that wrestling fans have wanted for a long time. You know, for me as a longtime fan, when you read the wrestling magazines when you're a kid, they talk about they have the covers literally with the dream matches on wrestling, like Superstars magazine of like what would happen if this guy, if Hogan ever wrestled Flair, actually was when I was a kid. Do you think these all star shows could be a thing of the future? across the industry it seems like the only thing really really preventing it is people's own imaginations uh yeah i mean i mean obviously you know forbidden door last year was a box office hit you know so i and, and this year going into it you know um you know the arena's already sold out in toronto and um you know i'm sure the pay-per-view numbers are going to be you know just as good as last year you know i would suspect so um, yeah, so I mean, I think that there, there obviously is something there for the future, and uh, you know, if companies, more companies, could come together and do these type of events, and and bring together, you know, talent to wrestle each other. Like, like I remember those magazines as well, Phil. So um, I, I think it's really, really cool and it's special, and um, you don't need a lot of setup in the fact of like. it's just wrestling it gets stale too you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. there's there's a part of wrestling that definitely gets stale we've seen so much it's hard to innovate right um you know you know we we see it happen every once in a while but like maybe this is a way to give fans what they want um obviously it's a great business you know decision to to work with another company and um without you know burning out your audience completely you know and, and giving you know giving them a couple weeks to be like get excited about this event have it every year and then move on to, you know, what each company needs to do, you know, from there. Yeah. And I'm old enough to realize too, that new Japan historically has done this so well in crossing over with other companies. I remember WWF when I was younger and then WCW after that, but mm-hmm. even, even to this day, you see that, you know, the crossover with Noah that happens, uh, in, it's happened the last two years in January. And the one that that's coming up, I think with, uh, was it, is it with all Japan and Noah? Yeah, all, t- all together, New Japan and or New Japan, all Japan and Noah together, and then yeah. Fantastic Mania too, which which right. is his own, which is his own thing. So they they've kind of built it into their own DNA that this is just kind of the way that they operate as a company. I, I, it's it's encouraging for me, but just because you said wrestling can get very uncreative very fast, mm-hmm. and if you throw some new wrenches into the mix. Um, it, it could be a lot more fun. Have you enjoyed it as a performer getting to, because you've been crossing over all over the place. Yeah. I mean, last, you know, last night I, I, I was in uh, Colorado Springs with AEW and uh, it was me and best friends against uh, Claudio Castagnoli, John Moxley and Wheeler Yuta. So, I mean, that was a, a match that, you know, I've never had, you know, I, I wrestled Claudio, you know, 15 years ago, wrestled Mox for the first time just recently, a couple weeks ago. And then, uh, you know, wrestled with Wheeler like a year ago or so. So it's kind of cool to get them all together. And and especially this version of them, I'm such a big fan of what Blackpool Combat Club is doing. So it's cool to get in there and mix it in with them, you know, on Dynamite. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of a role you played in pulling some of this together last year behind the scenes? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it all started out with the text that I sent Tony. Um, I was, I don't think I was traveling or something. And I just, I kept thinking like, man, I think it would be cool if, if we tried to do something and I think that we could pull it off, you know? And uh, so I sent a text to Tony about, uh, you know, do you think that we could pull off a, you know, a, a super show type of thing? And he, uh, he said, yeah, I would love to. And immediately started sending me back ideas for matches and stuff. And I said, I think like maybe this is possible. Even, you know, these, the, the, what you're sending me right now, I feel like it's possible. So, uh, and I, you know, and I, and the idea too was like, it doesn't, you know, it's forbidden door, but not every match needs to be a crossover match. I mean, we could have, you know, storylines from each company and, you know, present them on the show. It's, it's just the collaboration is there. Right. right. So, um, so I went back to new Japan and I, and I talked to them and, uh, you know, I said, Hey, I, you know, I talked to Tony and there's this crazy idea and he thinks he can pull it off in the, in the United center, you know? And, uh, and, uh, you know, and I, I, I said, well, here's some ideas, here are my ideas. And, uh, you know, they had some great ideas, obviously. So uh, we all kind of sat down and we were like, okay, I think we can do this. Let's see if they, if we can iron it out. And, um, you know, where the lawyers are able to pull it together. And, uh, here, you know, here we are. And it was a very successful show. And we're doing number two. And, you know, I, I it's early, but I would say that there's definitely going to be a number three, I would think. So um, I feel as long as it, it stays successful, uh, you know, and there's matches that people want to see. And the collaboration between two companies, I think that, you know, it's just a money, a money idea. Well, congratulations on pulling that off. It's been great for the fans, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll say. So um, the matches announced so far are uh, a rematch of one of, if not the best match of this year with uh, Kenny Omega against Will Ospreay for the U.S. Championship. And also a first time ever match between Brian Danielson and Kazuchika Okada. Any analysis from you on those matchups that, that you can provide? I mean, for me, I, I was in the Tokyo Dome earlier this year in January, and I watched uh, uh, Will and and Kenny uh, the first match. And uh, I mean, not only what is it like one of the greatest matches of this year, it's probably one of the greatest matches I've ever seen in my life, you know. And the other one was uh, watching Omega and Okada uh, one, then you know two, then three. So like, uh, so. I, uh, I'm obviously a big fan and of course I'm biased because I love New Japan wrestling, you know, but I, you know, in my opinion, um, what those two can possibly do in Toronto is, you know, going to be magical, especially in front of that crowd who, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be a great like Canadian crowd, but it's also going to be a lot of fly-ins from all over the world. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, fans, you know, super fans of professional wrestling and, uh, you know, last year at Forbidden Door United Center, I mean, that was one of the greatest crowds I've ever been in front of. Um, they were so excited about what we were doing. So uh, I can only imagine what it's going to be like. And then Danielson versus Okada. Uh, I mean, what a money promo from Danielson right off the bat, uh, saying what he said about, you know, you, Okada, you call yourself the Rainmaker. Well, there ain't going to be no rain. You know, it, we, I'm a de- this is a desert and there ain't going to be no rain. So... Uh, I don't know. It was very cool. It was a very surreal moment watching it, uh, uh, you know, unfold in Osaka. And um, yeah, I mean, I expect that it's probably going to be one of the greatest matches we've ever seen between literally the top, you know, 
five wrestlers in the world right now, you know, and Danielson and, and Okada. So, uh, and then you've got Osprey and Omega, you know, I mean, like we're talking like top 10 wrestlers in the world. And those top two matches are, uh, are our headlining this pay-per-view. And really all time greats that you're seeing in yeah. a double main event of one card, which is remarkable in itself. I'm probably not the person because I've been watching New Japan on and off pretty well since Omega versus Okada first caught my attention. But for the American viewer that only catches Piresu when it's brought directly to them, what do you think is the most appealing part of New Japan pro wrestling for an American fan? So I, I think like uh, I think what New Japan brings to the table, especially an event like Wrestle Kingdom, you know, it, it does feel super special. You know, obviously it's in a, in a huge building. It's in a, in a dome and uh, it feels, you know, like a WrestleMania type of feel, you know. And I don't think that there's very many wrestling shows that really have that kind of atmosphere. Uh, and then also the way it's shot as well, you know, just like it, it feels like you're watching boxing, you know, professional high level boxing as opposed to, uh, you know, professional wrestling in a way, you know, because it, it's definitely shot so differently. And then once you once you kind of see that, then you kind of see the uh, the wrestlers and the characters unfold. You see how athletic it is. You see how the drama is built. Uh, you know, in, in, in the matches between the opponents. And then uh, and then finally, yeah, like, you know, there's nothing like uh, a series of the, the, the last stretch of a New Japan pro wrestling like title match, something like Okada and Omega. I mean, it, it's just like incredible. The crowd is screaming at the top of their lungs, you know, and, and, and we've got such a diverse fan base in, in Japan where like, um, you know, Wrestling fans can be, you know, women dressed up, you know, in Gucci shoes and, and, you know, handbags to, you know, a guy who, you know, just got off of work and like is just running over to the arena to make it in time, you know. So, um, yeah, it, I don't know. I think it's just a really, really special thing. Japanese wrestling and the way they present it and the details are, are just really awesome. And like for me going to I was able to go to the G1 uh, Supercard at the Garden and then also uh, the Palladium uh, shows uh, this past. I guess that was the end of October because my birthday mm -hmm. is the end of October. So I'm trying to remember when it was. But um, for me, it was always it was always appealing to me to be able to see like the true Japanese talent, like some of the American guys like I've seen and I know and everything like that. But like being in those buildings when Kaze Minare hits and Minoru Suzuki walks out with yeah. a towel on his head is just <laughs> it's an unbelievable feeling. Like, yeah. And you don't get that in America. No, it's very different. Very different. Yeah. But it, it's also cool to watch how, uh, you know, the American audience has has taken it in, you know, like the fans that know how quickly it catches on. And and uh, I don't know. Yeah. Like for Kazuni Nare, when when Minoru Suzuki walks into a room, you know, into the arena, like, I don't know, it's just really, really cool. And uh, I know I, Suzuki has sent me videos where he's all over the world and he uh, and he, you know, shoot me a clip where he's like just baffled by it every time, you know, like it starts in America, but like sometimes in Mexico, they'll do it or like, you know, in England. And, and it's just really, really cool. And I, I think it means a lot to the, uh, to the Japanese wrestlers to have that, that impact uh, outside of Japan. Yeah. And I think Ishii kind of gets a similar uh, response kind of from the American crowds who, who have followed him a little bit too. 
Yeah. What's it like for you even seeing New Japan run cards in the U.S. now? Did you ever think you'd see that? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was always like the hope to, you know, to see New Japan run. And then now that, you know, it's, it's a very regular schedule, you know, where we're doing, you know, uh, three to four shows, you know, major, you know, pay-per-view shows uh, here and as well as, you know, you know, doing some touring with some smaller events with our, our New Japan Strong uh, um, uh, version of, of New Japan here. Well, New Japan of America is New Japan Strong. So, um, so yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been really cool to, to kind of see the growth of New Japan in America. We've got a dojo out in Los Angeles where we're, you know, looking for the next generation of professional wrestlers to bring into new japan japan and new japan strong here in america so uh it's been it's been really cool just to to see the growth over the years and i you know this is just the beginning and now that uh you know things are back to normal in japan and you know crowds are fully open and you know all the restrictions that we had for you know you know almost three years are are done with um you know i think new japan is just going to get much stronger domestically in japan and internationally here in America. In researching for this, I believe I first saw you wrestle in person as a member of the Havana Pitbulls in Ring of Honor in Elizabeth, New Jersey, around 2004 or something like that. Wow, and, my age. <laughs> what's that? Show your Showing age and mine. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I realized too, like at that time, so you were trained in the original LA Dojo also. Yes, yes. And that yeah. was with, with Inoki. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So New Japan had had opened a uh, uh, a dojo in Santa Monica, California, and um, basically it was like at the order of Antonio Noki. Like he he was in Los Angeles a lot at that time, living going back and forth from Tokyo, but from primarily living in Los Angeles. So um, so he wanted a dojo there because I think he obviously he was a brilliant man and he could see the future and his idea is now what's kind of the concept of what we're doing right now so like he wanted a dojo and he felt like that could be the heartbeat in the center of new japan going forward if they could cross over uh internationally into america so um but by that time you know the world you know it, it the world it wasn't you know was a big world at that point because it wasn't didn't become the small you know like so accessible and easy right when streaming and everything came you know into fruition so um you know it was it was it, he was ahead of his time and he was right uh but it just happened you know 20 years later or so so um but yeah and uh, i trained there with you know brian danielson samoa joe uh ricky reyes tjp uh we were all part of that original first class of the the la dojo and um so yeah so like yeah even even you know brian and i go back you know, quite a quite a ways. You know, training in in the dojo together. Was that Lyoto Machida back then too, or Lyoto Machida was there? Shinsuke Nakamura was there. That place was crazy. Like any day, at any time, somebody would just show up. So like you know, China Joni Lauer would come in. Uh, when she was working for with New Japan, and you know she'd be training jujitsu with us and bringing us donuts. You know, um, then uh, you know you the next day you you know. Josh Barnett would show up and he'd be teaching us how, you know, catches catch, you know, catches catch hand wrestling. And then, you know, Ken Shamrock would show up and show us how to do leg locks. I mean, it was like, it was such a wild time because Inoki would come in 
quite a bit. And, um, you know, obviously, like, everybody's gravitated to Inoki in some kind of way, right? Whether it's New Japan business or at that time, whether it was uh, the MMA stuff, we, you know, with Pride and Inoki Bumaye. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of like a really cool epic center for a lot of these, uh, you know, brilliant artists and wrestlers and fighters and, you know, soccer players to, to kind of come through. I mean, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty fun. How did all that shape your career? Because, you, you you know, it's, it's such a large portion of your career has been in New Japan now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think definitely Inoki's teachings have definitely made an impact on me of what kind of professional wrestler I am and how I kind of think about professional wrestling. Uh, and also, of course, New Japan has impacted and, and the things that they've done in the past, obviously, definitely. I mean, like we were talking about it earlier and, you know, how many times have they done crossover collaborations with companies or, you know, like the whole NWO angle, you know, that, that Eric Bischoff, you know, kind of, he admits that he kind of got the idea or, you know, or sold from the idea from New Japan versus, you know, UWFI which is one of the most awesome rivalries in, in Japanese professional wrestling and kind of like a great blueprint of how to do, you know, one company versus another company and kind of how to build that tension throughout the night and build, you know, uh, the angle up to it, you know, and, and how to end it, you know, as well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like, and as well, like junior heavyweight wrestling, I mean, that was when I was just starting to break into the business and I started to really watch New Japan, uh, I fell in love with it. And, and, you know, it all started with the junior heavyweights, which, you know, he, Eric Bischoff says, you know, turned into the cruiserweight division in WCW. So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, that's kind of my my era uh, of, of professional wrestling, kind of uh, when it was the most influential when I was just breaking in. So, um, so yeah, it's definitely shaped the way that I look at wrestling. But, I you know, I, I've, I've been trying to be an ambassador for the company, and uh, as much as I'd like to wrestle in Japan, it's just really hard to just to do both right now. So um, so I've really been taking the last two years to try to build our relationships outside of, uh, of you know, outside of Japan. So uh, working with Impact, working with AEW, uh, working with smaller organizations to get places for our younger wrestlers to wrestle, uh, working on CMLL's uh, relationship in Mexico. Um so yeah, so I, that that's kind of been the thing that I've been trying to do and help, and I think that that all kind of stems from, you know, the Enochism and uh, and New Japan in general. Let's talk about the CMLL thing a little bit. Uh, uh, you've been somewhat of a globetrotter. You mentioned all the different places that you've been on behalf of New Japan. But you have this rivalry going with Volador Jr. and CMLL that sounds pretty interesting. For fans who might not be familiar with the Volador Jr. feud, how would you bring them up to speed on the back and forth between you and two, when you and him? So it, it's, it's kind of an old rivalry. Like uh, one of the first big moments in my career was New Japan sent me on an excursion to Mexico back in 2003. Uh, in 2003, there was a, a, another guy named Volador Jr., who we ended up kind of creating a small rivalry uh, between the both of us. And then it kind of like uh, we wrestled for the super, the like the first ever Super Lihero Championship. I ended up winning it. I ended up losing it to another guy like uh, six months later. And then that was it. I didn't really like 
we didn't really have any interaction, you know, a little bit over the years, like in a new Japan type type of setting and six man or eight man or something, but like never really had that, uh, that rivalry kind of continue. But, uh, new uh, CML reached out to me about coming back in for, uh, the grand prix, uh, last year. So, um, you know, I, I, people's, I, I didn't know that I was going to kind of be going into this rivalry with, with Volador, but every question I kept being, you know, like what I did, like a media scrum and everybody kept asking me about Volador and like, and 2003 and they were asking me. So then I, I, in that immediate, like my instinct was, well, they want to see me against Volador. So I'm going to go in on Volador. <laughs> so, and I did. So about for 30 minutes of the media scrum, instead of talking about the grand prix, I just started talking crap on Volador and uh and it worked <laughs> so which uh he was not really happy about and uh so we kind of go started going back and forth and um and uh you know and it kind of turned into so like the like it, it's a very like uh thing in Mexico to say like you know like uh like oh I own you basically like I you know I got you you know so like to but to say it would be like just right to papa like so I say like oh I'm Volador's dad you know right but but take it even kind of further, uh, you know, I started calling him, his real name is Ramon. So I still start, I started calling him Little Ramon, which is Ramoncito. And then, then it just kind of like got crazier and crazier with this thing. Like it ended up being his birthday. So this is stuff that never happens in CMLO because they're such like an old school traditional Lucha Libre company. So they don't, it's not like the WWE where like anything could happen and, you know, like cars blow up and crazy things, you know. It, so, like, me coming, I, I brought a cake to Arena Mexico right before a match, and I'm, I got the whole crowd in Mexico, like 10,000 people, to sing Happy Birthday in English to Volador. And then, like, like and just, like, crazy stuff like that. I just started, I started to try to bring an American influ- influence into it, but without kind of, but but still staying, like, grounded and rooted, you know. So yeah. that it wasn't like hokey or like um, so over the top that the fans wouldn't buy it. You know, yeah. there was like that realism, you know. So, um, so yeah, I just started doing stuff like that. And, uh, uh, you know, there was the fans, you know, some fans were really angry that there's I'm doing that kind of stuff. And some fans really loved it. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity. I made a I made a diss track and a diss uh, and a diss music video against him. I mean, it was just classic, you know, fun, Rocky Romero professional wrestling. <laughs> fun stuff within the, you know, the, the tradition of the lo- longest running, I think, wrestling company in the yeah. world, I think, is CMLL. I think it's like 90 years or something like That's, that. they, they got to be number one because I can't think yeah. of anybody else around then, you know, no. continuously. Um, no. How much did you learn being under the legendary Black Tiger persona and how did you grow kind of as a performer in that role um yeah i uh i I, you know what a what an honor i couldn't believe that they had asked me to become black tiger you know my favorite wrestler of all time is eddie guerrero so to be connected to him in some kind of way through that lineage and and a legendary legendary character like black tiger uh was just kind of like what me are you sure you know i had asked like about four times but um uh no it was it was really cool because like i said i was i was such a big fan of junior heavyweight wrestling and and you know the idea of it in new japan and super j cups and all that you know in the 90s so 
uh, and early 2000s. So I, I really wanted to do something special for it, you know? So like, and it was also like a great learning, like just like a learning tool because I was always kind of like Rocky Romero for my whole career. So to have this new character and they kind of like built this backstory that, you know, uh, this, you know, Tiger Mask 4 was trained by the original Tiger Mask Sator Sayama. So they said in the storyline that Black Tiger was trained by Mark Rocco, who was the original Black Tiger. Uh-huh. So so then uh, I was like, well, I don't wrestle like that at all. Right. So uh, so I, I really studied Mark and how he moved and uh, all the techniques that he did and everything that he did and really try to look, get as much information on his background uh, that I could get just so I could try to like create the Black Tiger character in my head before I get there. And uh, and then I had to like retrain myself of the way that I move in the ring and the ways of that he like he would drop an elbow drop or whatever uh, and speed up and slow down. And, and, and like all the little things that he would do, I tried to like mimic them. So that I would have those characteristics, kind of like Tiger Mask 4 had for the original Tiger Mask. So it was cool because it was a really big challenge in that in that aspect of, um, you know, creating a character kind of from scratch with having just certain points. And then uh, and then, you know, be actually being successful with it was just the cherry on top. Outstanding. So we're going to move on to something we call the three count now. It's going to be three quick questions and your answers. What is your favorite theme song that you have performed? And what's your favorite theme song that you were not the performer on? So favorite theme song that I have performed, probably that's a toss up between Rapunzel Vice and my new one, Dalai Asuka. Uh, but I'm going to go with Rapunzel Vice because it's the original. Um, and then one that I have not done. <laughs> Probably, probably Okada song. When that you hear the coin drop, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So next question: You've been in many great tag teams over the course of your career: Havana Pitbulls, No Remorse Corps, Forever Hooligans, Rapunky Vice. Who's someone in wrestling, past, present, or future, who would make a fun tag team with Rocky Romero? Man, Eddie Guerrero and I would have been awesome. I think. You know, like like. Him and Chavo were great for sure, for sure. But I, you know, like, uh, and I definitely think it would be, would have played it somewhat like that out, you know, the chemistry between him and Chavo. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I would have loved to be able to have wrestled or teamed with with Eddie. That'd be incredible. Did you uh, did you ever run across him early in your career? So no, no, I, unfortunately not. So like that time where where he was out of the WWE. Uh, we never crossed paths, and uh, the only there was only one time I, I told this on Jericho's podcast. I, I met him and Jericho one time in like I think it was like ninety, I want to say like ninety six or something or ninety four. It was whenever they had that that Halloween Havoc match between him and Ray. Oh, okay. It was like the Monday after they had right they had Monday Night Nitro, and uh, I just ran into them at the. Um, at the New York, New York in the arcade. And I was maybe like 15 or something, 14 or 15. And, uh, and I ran into him and Jericho and I, so I, I asked them both for autographs. Jericho was so nice. He gave me an autograph and I asked Eddie for an autograph. I said, Eddie, you're my favorite wrestler. Can I get your autograph? And he goes, no, and just walks away. (laughs) So then uh, Jericho looks at me and he could see the, you know, 
my face was my jaw was like on the floor like what and uh jerica goes give him like five minutes and come back and i bet you he'll give me an autograph so i went and like stalked them for five minutes like from afar you know just waiting to be like all right when is the five minutes and i ran back up to him i said please eddie you know like you're my favorite wrestler can i just please get you out of here he's like fine he <laughs> nice gave me the autograph jericho kind of looked and smiled at me and then i, I walked off um, and then, yeah, so I like talking to Jericho after he, I guess like Eddie was on a brand new diet and he wasn't eating carbs and he was very miserable. So he didn't really want to be around anybody besides Jericho. But, uh, um, but yeah, that was the only time I got to interact with him. And, uh, it, yeah, just like, I don't, it, it's a, it's a cool story for me now. Like, yeah. Really, yeah. I think the, my last three count question, I probably know the answer to already, but aside from yourself, who was your favorite black tiger? Oh, yeah, Eddie was good. Mark Rocco was good, too, though. Yeah. It, I was going to say on the honorable mention, but it's got to be the guy that you basically based your own persona on, I would right. think. Right. And just as a bonus question, something I was just thinking of, you've been literally everywhere. What is the closest you've ever come to wrestling a match in WWE? So, oh, okay. So, so they, um, they really wanted me for the, the Cruiserweight Classic. Ah. And uh, and I was in in between or about to be in between contract. I think I was in between contracts and we were renegotiating mine and WWE was very interested. They wanted to offer me the Cruiserweight Classic and uh, and then but and then they they wanted to offer me a coaching position. So and I think that, that if they didn't offer me the coaching position and they just offered me the Cruiserweight Classic, then I probably maybe would have waited a little bit longer to re-sign with new japan and i would have done that but the co them offering me the coaching position made me feel like they didn't want me to wrestle so that it wasn't maybe going to go very far on the cruiserweight so i decided to not take it and re-sign with new japan yeah and then you've already had so many years of wrestling since then and still going <laughs> yeah so yeah i mean i feel like i'm the last like two years have been you know some of my best years in the business you know so like I, I'm glad that I did not take the coaching deal, you know, now for sure. Very good. Well, Rocky Romero, thank you so much for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I've really enjoyed this. Just to remind everybody, Forbidden Door in Toronto, Sunday, June 25th. Thanks so much and good luck with everything you've got coming up. Appreciate it, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I'd like to thank Rocky Romero from New Japan Pro Wrestling for joining me today. I'd also like to thank Farbad Esnahari for helping set this up with a special shout out as well to Owen Phillips and Chris Charlton. Keep watching at Under the Ring on Twitter for upcoming guest announcements and when we might walk through the forbidden door again. Have a great week, everyone. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.